life's greatest question. Four weeks ago, we or four sessions ago, we started out with this kind of uh, up there. What is life's greatest question? And I put forward that probably the question is, does God exist? There's lots of important questions. But that really has got to be right up there amongst the most important because it changes everything. It changes your perspective on the world, on life, the way you live, and your morals and everything else. So it really is a fundamentally important question. And really, anybody that says it doesn't matter is just being ignorant because, of course, it matters. Dave Hunt was sitting next to a chief executive of a a company once on an aeroplane. And uh, he was talking about all the wonderful things, this, this executive that, that the science has discovered and so on. And Dave Hunt started talking about God. And this executive was kind of like, more or less, oh, that doesn't matter. And Dave Hunt said, you've got to be kidding. You're telling me that if science could find a way of proving the existence of God, you're saying that wouldn't be the greatest discovery that science has ever made? And this executive thought about it for a moment. He said, well, yeah, I suppose so. You see, people have become conditioned to putting God in that bracket of kind of the Easter bunny and fairies, all those kind of things that we know are mythical, we know are made up. And that's where so many people put God and the idea of belief in God. And yet, as we went through and looked at, there are so many arguments. We listed uh, in our first session at least 20 compelling arguments that all go to prove God's existence and that the Bible really is God's word given to us from outside our time domain. It's not something that's just the work of mankind. It's too detailed. It's too complex. The prophecies alone are just breathtaking. There is no other book on the planet that tells the future before it happens with the detail the Bible does. But if you remember, I said you know, all of that stuff we want to put to one side just for a second because it's all important. But you know, there's something I think that is just just as profound, in fact, even more profound than all of those things. Because in a sense, it ties together all of those things. And this mystery that we started looking at, this great mystery. And I posed the question, that you know, is it possible that there's a mystery that spans the ages? A mystery that was birthed in a Middle Eastern desert over 3,000 years ago, but is right now determining events of our day. You know, do, do we even believe that the outcome of this next election we're about to have has already been determined in heaven. Do, do we have that mindset? Do we think that God is in that much control? The events are going on around the world. You know, could it be that the mystery involves global leaders and heads of state, presidents, prime ministers, and many others have all been working to this predetermined timetable, and most of them without their knowing? Could it be that this mystery has decided world events down to the year the month, and even the very day of their occurring. Yeah, and what if I could show you that everything that has ever been and everything that ever will be are connected to and are all part of this incredible mystery? And again, if I could show you that you don't need faith to believe this, because all these things that we've been looking at are just interwoven into the fabric of history. We went on to talk about the mystery of Israel, And I asked the question, if there were a people that God had brought into existence to be a witness and a sign of his existence, to bring about his purposes, you know, wouldn't we expect them to be different? Wouldn't we expect them to stand out? Couldn't we expect them also to be hated by the God of this world, by Satan? And wouldn't we expect that if there were such a people that God was using to bring about his plans and purposes, to reveal himself to the world, that they would be hated 
Yeah, and isn't it interesting that when we look at Israel, we see all of those things. And we went through looking at the prophetic history of the nation, which is in itself breathtaking. There is no other nation on the earth that you can look at that were dispersed from their land for some 2,000 years or so and then regathered as a nation. And yet that's exactly what Moses prophesied over the nation in Deuteronomy 28 and going through the following chapters. We looked also about the appointed times, these feast days and these celebrations that Israel have. And the way that certain events just reoccur on those dates, beyond anything that we could possibly engineer or imagine. The fact that the feasts of Israel are all a model in advance of things that were to come or are still to come. And that in itself is undeniable proof of God's existence and the the truth of the Bible. We looked at that incredible detail of the labor cycle, the pregnancy that's concealed within the feasts. You know, details that weren't known when those feasts were, were celebrated. And yet clearly we see God's hand in that as well. We looked at the mystery of the 490 years, the way that God has worked with his people in this numerical pattern of 490 years. And we went through all of these details showing that from Abraham to the Exodus we have a period of 490 years. From the Exodus to the temple, the same. From the temple to that Edict of Xerxes in Nehemiah chapter 2. There's a period of 490 years, and from that point up until the millennial kingdom of Christ, there'll be another period of 490 years. And we're in that interim at the moment, that silent period in a sense, which we refer to as the church interval, where God has put on hold his plans and he's working for Israel, certainly from a prophetic perspective. And yet as we're starting to see, it's not actually silent. God is still working. God is still doing incredible things, working towards his predetermined timetable. And we've said already that God really uses Israel as a timepiece. You know, this morning I forgot my watch. I asked Marla to bring it down because I knew you'd all be concerned if I didn't have my watch. And, you know, I went on, you know, too long. Uh, that will never happen. So, um, but yeah, God uses Israel as his timepiece to know where we are in the scheme of things. And we have that great verse in Isaiah 46 that says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, I will do all my pleasure. God tells the end from the beginning. He tells the future before it's it's come to pass, because God is outside of time. He sees tomorrow as we see yesterday. So, we started looking a couple of weeks ago now at this mystery. And we started by talking about this prophecy that we find in Deuteronomy. This prophecy that a stranger would come and visit the land. This incredible uh, detail that we, we saw laid down in history that we see Mark Twain, this individual that steps onto the world scene. He was a, a journalist. He embarked on the journey coming to Israel, or around the, 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 the world actually, but his journey ended up in Israel. And he ends up coming to the land and recording what he saw and just writing down how the land was so barren, how it was so desolate, there was not a blade of grass that grew there. 
and records all these things just as the prophecy had stated that there would come someone into the land from far away who would record all these things. And Mark Twain becomes a vessel that God uses. And we said the incredible thing was that occurred in the year 1867, which on its own you don't tend to think much about. But the incredible thing was on the last day of Mark Twain's journey in the land, the very scripture that was read in the Jewish synagogues around the world was the scripture from Deuteronomy about the stranger coming to the land. I mean, there's no way you could organize or arrange that. But it wasn't just that. We went on and talked about that prophecy that we see just after Israel had, had returned from Babylon. And Zechariah has this prophecy of a man with a measuring line to go and measure Jerusalem. And that occurred just as the people were getting ready to return to the land. And so we saw also Charles Warren end up going to the land, to measure out the land, at the time that the land was under the control of the Ottoman Turks, and measuring out Jerusalem and uncovering these incredible things. And we said the, the amazing thing there was he was in the land at the very same time that Mark Twain was in the land. In fact, they actually dwelt in the same house, and the same lodging uh, at the same time. None, none of this they orchestrated, they planned. And of course, Mark, uh, sorry, uh, Charles Warren uh, unearthed and uncovered the ancient city, including the, the waterway that led into the city by which Israel first conquered and came to take possession of the land in the time of David. All of these things being uncovered. That scripture that was read from Deuteronomy 29, so that generation, uh, so, so the generation to come of your children that shall rise up after you and the stranger that shall come from a far land shall say when they see the plagues of the land and the sickness which the Lord has laid upon it and the whole, and that the whole land thereof is brimstone and salt and that the burning that is not, sorry, and burning and that it is not sown nor bearing nor any grass growing therein like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adamar and Zeboim which the Lord overthrew in his anger and in his wrath. That was a scripture, as I say, that was read that day. The appointed uh, parasha, the scripture that the Jews read, they have a different scripture every Sabbath day that they read around the world in all the synagogues. And that was the one that was appointed for that last day uh, Mark Twain was in the land. And those, those things all started to be fulfilled as God was preparing to bring his people back. And we said the incredible thing also was that Mark Twain, even his name, contained a mystery because... Samuel Clements was his real name. He had Mark Twain as kind of his stage name or, or publishing name. But Samuel means God hears. And Clemens means mercy. And the amazing thing is that the Jews, for the best part of 2,000 years, whilst they've been scattered around the world, had repeatedly prayed this prayer. And some of you may have heard this many a time. Have mercy, Lord our God, on Jerusalem, your city, and on Zion, the resting place of your glory. Rebuild Jerusalem, the city of holiness, speedily in our days. Bring us up into it and gladden us in its rebuilding. Let us eat from its fruit and be satisfied with goodness and bless uh, you upon it in holiness and purity. This is cry for God to hear and God to have mercy and at this particular moment in time, as God is starting to stir in 1867, so the very man whose name means God hears and has mercy is in the land, declaring that the land is barren just as the prophecy said. We talked about the lost being found in terms of that which had been buried 
I read a quote from uh, Jonathan Kahn who said this, in the Jubilee, the connection between the land and its owner is restored. Up until then, the owner, the original owner has no right concerning the land. He can't even walk on it without permission of the, the one now occupying it. But when the Jubilee comes, the owner can again walk on his land, farm it and build on it and dwell in it. The barriers are removed. The owner's connection to the land and the land's connection to its owner are reaffirmed and restored. And that is exactly what took place with the work uh, of Charles Warren as he uncovered these things that had been hidden and hidden in the old city uh, from his archaeological digs and so on and things that people have completely forgotten about remember that the Romans when they had caused the Jews to flee had destroyed Israel, destroyed Jerusalem they plowed over Jerusalem to remove any trace you know, the Jewish people had lost their homeland and the holy city in the first century and the Romans really had tried so hard to erase every connection with the people. And they renamed Jerusalem and remade it into a pagan city. And they call it Aliela Capitolona. Uh, and this, this place, again, just trying to eradicate any connection with the Jews. And they renamed the land Palestina, which is where we get the name Palestine from. And it simply means the land of the Philistines. They were, of course, Israel's ancient enemies. And that erasing was so successful that for most of the 2,000 years that, that followed, the land of Israel would simply be known as Palestine. And even today, most people refer to it as that. You know, the Jews were banned from setting foot in their holy city. Another quote from Jonathan Kahn, he said, So the owner was cut off from his land. And the other powers who would follow the Romans in occupying the land and the city would do similarly, obscuring the connection of the land to its people. Now, on its own, that should be enough to just draw a line and say, that's it, it's over for Israel, though there is no, no more Israel, no more nation. But God is working here. God is fulfilling his promises. Thousands of years after these prophecies were given. But when the Jubilee comes, the connection between the owner and the land is restored, and that which was lost is regained. That's the principle of the Jubilee. And as I said, Charles Warren, that man with the measuring line, didn't only measure Jerusalem. He mapped out ancient Jerusalem and dug it up and so on. He came not just with the surveying equipment, but with all the tools and things that he needed. And he uncovered the walls of the ancient city, the gates, the chambers, and what was hidden under the Temple Mount and so on. And if some of you have been through Israel, you've been under the Temple, you've seen this incredible... Uh, panorama of history as you go down these various levels underneath what you can see on the surface but that other thing that he discovered I mentioned a moment ago that he just stumbled upon was this water shaft as he was crawling through one day with one of his colleagues and that led to this discovery of this way into Jerusalem that again made that connection and that connection again just links the city of Jerusalem with the Jewish people. So many people even today will try and deny Israel's claim to the land. But all these things gradually have been reconnecting Israel with that land. The city of David, Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah that have been lost has now been found again because of these things. Again, Jonathan Carr says this, In the mystery of the Jubilee, what has to take place? And he answers and says, That which is lost must be found. And the land must be restored to its original owner. So the Jerusalem that was lost was found again. And this marked the beginning of the restoration of Jerusalem to the Jewish people. And according to the mystery of the Jubilee, the original connection between the owner and the land, 
biblical Jerusalem and the Jewish people was renewed. Again, that shaft that Warren discovered, as I said, linked up Jerusalem's ancient water system. And as I said, that's that connection with when Israel first, or Jerusalem first came into the possession of the children of Israel. And as I said also, that occurred itself also in the year 1867, which was a year of jubilee. You start to see how God was working through all of these things. Another quote, So Jerusalem is hidden in the earth for 2,000 years, and of all the years to begin emerging, it happens in 1867. The same year everything else happens. Remember the prophecy, the stranger comes to the land, and then what happens? The return, the regathering. The land was being readied, and the discovery was in the autumn of 1867. Why is that significant? Well, because it was in the autumn of 1867 that the stranger came to the land and to the city and dwelt in the same place as Warren, as we've already mentioned. In fact, after 2,000 years of lying in the dust, ancient Jerusalem was discovered less than 30 days after the coming of the stranger. It would ultimately be a sign, a foreshadowing that Jerusalem would again be restored and become a living city filled with the children of Israel. But, and now starting to move forward, the land, of course, was under the rule of others. You know, you just try and think about this. We're talking about prophecies that said the land was going to be given back to Israel. But how do you go about giving a land that belongs to somebody else back to someone who owned it many, many, many years ago? You know, the, the nations of the world wouldn't suddenly say, hang on a minute, the Bible must be true, so we're going to engineer these things, we're going to work toward this. So how did all these things happen? Well, it would happen through another mystery, a mystery that would ultimately change the course of world history. You see, again, in the year of Jubilee, as we're told in Scripture, the field shall return to him whom the possession of the land did belong. So the land has to be returned to the one to whom it belongs. The one who occupies it, therefore, must relinquish it, whether they want to or not. And this is part of the law of Jubilee, the rule of Jubilee that was given in Scripture. That whether the, the new occupant wants to leave it or wants to relinquish it, they don't get a choice. God has decreed that this is to happen so that that return can take place. But again, how does that work out in world history? Nations don't just give up their land because of an ancient ordinance or because of what the Bible says. Well, I'm sure most of you are familiar from history, but the land of Israel had been taken over by the enemies of the Jewish people and one kingdom after the next until it lay in the hands of the Ottoman Empire. They were an Islamic power and they weren't about to relinquish anything to the Jewish people. And they certainly weren't observing the law of Jubilees. But again, the mystery of the Jubilee applies to the entire world, to believer and unbeliever alike. God is doing something and working here behind the scenes, irrespective of man's will. And this mystery causes all things, all events, even the rise and fall of kingdoms, to move in the course that will fulfill the appointed purposes. You see, God is working on such a big scale here. And this is why I'm trying to encourage you as individuals to see that if God is working on this scale in the world, then God is working in the same way in your lives. And you can trust him for everything. You see, according to this ancient ordinance of Jubilee, the land must be released to its owner. And, of course, God will accomplish his purpose. So the mystery must 
manifest. It must be made clear in one way or another. So how did it happen? Well, this is incredible. It all starts with a missing star. Not the star of Bethlehem, although actually, in a sense, it was. The star of Bethlehem is a bit of a misnomer. We'll talk about that maybe as we get a little closer to the Christmas time. But there was a star, a metal star. And it was held and kept in the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem. Now, a lot of these places are just built on tradition and so on. But nevertheless, there was this star that was there and it was believed to have some great value. And it was kept in the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem. And the conflict arose because the Greek Orthodox and the Latin clergy had a real issue. Because this star disappeared. And so they blamed each other. The Latin clergy blamed the Orthodox, the Greek Orthodox, and the Greek Orthodox blamed the Latins, and they both said that each other had taken this. But this star nevertheless had disappeared. Well, the Russian government sided with the Orthodox clergy, but the Ottoman Empire sided with France and Britain and Sardinia, and they all again agreed with the Latin clergy. So we end up with these kind of these big powers, significant powers on either side of this kind of silly little incident But there was other issues as well. There was land issues and so on. And people were concerned about Russia trying to take over some of the the Ottoman Empire. And this all led to what we we know from history as the Crimean War. Now this war would prove to be a turning point for the Ottoman Empire. In the course of the conflict, the empire would enter into massive loans with its European creditors the first of several, that would ultimately lead to financial disaster and bankruptcy for the Ottoman Empire. And so two years after the end of the Crimean War, the Sultan enacted what was known as the Ottoman Land Code. And all land that therefore had to be registered so it could be taxed, so that they could raise money. So... This Ottoman land code, very, very significant because this then opened up the door for the large-scale buying and selling of Ottoman land, including the Holy Land. But according to their law, originally no foreigners were allowed to buy any of their land. It had to be somebody from within the empire. And of course, the Jews have been scattered throughout the world, so they weren't allowed to buy any of this land. So that doesn't help. But... Remember, remind you again, the law of Jubilee states that the land must be transferred back to its original owner. So it has to come about in one way or another. Well, significantly, that registration of the land didn't solve the empire's financial problems. And the situation was critical enough to cause the government to do something very unprecedented. Nine years after that first land code, they enacted a new law, and this new Ottoman land code then allowed foreigners to purchase the land. Now, there is no way the Ottoman Turks could have foreseen what was going to happen. They had no plan on this. They were simply looking to cover their debts. But this meant that the children of Israel, the Jewish people, could start buying back the land. As in the Jubilee, those who occupy the land must release it. They must relinquish it. The effects of this law would be almost unnoticeable at first, but in time, it changes the history of the Middle East and the modern world in which we now live. The Jewish people would begin purchasing their ancient land, at times through third parties so that the Ottoman authorities didn't know what was going on. But when the authorities realised it, it was too late. 
They placed a, a ban on Jews buying land in Palestine, as they referred to it. But you see, the release of that land would continue, nevertheless, because God had decreed this was going to happen. And it would prepare the way for the return of the exiles to the land. And again, this only happened because of the Ottoman land code. And the Ottoman land code only happened because of the Ottoman debt. And the Ottoman debt only happened because of the European loans. And the loans only happened because of the Crimean War. And the Crimean War only happened because of a missing style. God engineered all of these things to bring about the situation where Israel were able to start purchasing their land back. Again, all those events, part of this mystery of the Jubilee. Again, the mystery doesn't cause the events, but it causes all things to work together for God's appointed purposes. When did that release of the land begin? You may be surprised to find out that it was 1867. You see... What must happen after the stranger's journey in the land? This is another quote from Jonathan Carney. He says, well, the Jewish people must come back from their exile to the land. So the land must be made ready for their return. So in accordance with the ancient ordinance, the Ottoman Empire begins to release the land. The one occupying it must release it. Again, the stranger's journey began on the 8th of June, 1867. And he says, do you know when the release began? He says, on the 10th of June, 1867. So of all the years and the days of human history, the relinquishing of the land begins two days after the stranger's journey in the land. You see how God brought everything together at this one particular moment in history. Again, the timing is all determined by this mystery of the Jubilee. The Jubilee, the land must be released at a set time. Again, who is it that must relinquish it? Well, it's the one who isn't the original owner, but the one who now occupies it. But as we know from history, the land had changed hands several times since the original owner had lost it, since Israel had lost it. Well, in that case, the last one to occupy the land is the one who has to relinquish it, according to the law of Jubilee. Jonathan Kahn says this, he says, The Jubilee undoes the last transaction, but in doing so, it undoes all of them. By restoring the land to its owner, the Jubilee undoes all the transactions of those who have occupied it. As I said, as we've seen, it was the Ottoman Empire who occupied the Holy Land at that time when all these things took place. And the strangers returned, the man with the measuring line, the discovery of the lost city. And so again, it would be in the days of that empire that the return of the land to its original owners would begin. They would be the last occupiers of the land before the return. Again, the Jubilee would undo the last transference of the land, its transference to the Ottoman Empire. But how did the Ottomans come into possession of that land in the first place? How was it that they ended up with the land? Well, from history, you may remember in AD 70, the armies of Rome destroyed Jerusalem. They had this whole region. And they drove the Jewish people into the nations after destroying Jerusalem and forcing Israel out of the land. And then they occupied the land for the next 500 years or so. That then gave way to the Byzantine Empire. Okay, When the Roman Empire divided in two, the Byzantines conquered and occupied the land and 
That then, in the 7th century, led to the armies of the Muslim Caliph Umar occupying the land. And from then on, the land, with the brief exception of the Crusaders and so on, would be occupied by various Muslim rulers and warring factions up until the occupation of the Ottomans, and that's the kind of territory you see they had. Well, there was one particular individual. This was the first individual of the Ottoman Empire, Salem, the first known as Salem the Grim. And if you look at his face, you can see he doesn't look particularly happy there. He was an Ottoman prince. He defeated his father and his brothers in sort of skullduggery uh, to ascend to the throne as sultan. But soon after his ascension, he challenged the Persian Shah Ismail in the battle, in battle rather, and defeated him. And then he turned his armies against the um, Mamluk Sultanate, which were currently in the land, which was this Islamic empire that was centered in Cairo and Egypt. And then this battle of Radania, and they defeated them there. So Salem now becomes the master of all the lands that have been ruled by the Mamluks. And one of those lands, of course, was Israel. And one of those cities was Jerusalem. So this individual then is in control of this region for a short period, and it's passed down sub- subsequently to others. So the Mamluks were the last occupiers before the Ottomans arrived, and the Ottomans in turn came and into possession of the land not long after the late days of Columbus. And they would occupy the land through the time of the Reformation, the American Revolution, the Industrial Revolution in this country, and into the 20th century. Now there would have, of course, been several jubilees that occurred from the time of Salem's victory at the Battle of Redania to modern times. Anybody know from history when the Battle of Redania took place? I'm not expecting you to know. I didn't know until I started digging and finding these things. It was in 1517. Why is that significant? Well, because that also was a year of jubilee. In fact, it was in 1517 that we saw that last transference of the land up until 1867. Now, you know from Scripture that number seven means new beginnings. Or complete, has this idea of being complete. And so you'd be surprised, probably not surprised to learn that there are exactly 350 years between 1517 and 1867. That's 50 times 7. In other words, we had seven jubilees occur from that last transference of the land when the Ottoman Empire took control of the land. Their time was up. According to God's decree, the land had to be given back from that point. And it was at that point they started having to relinquish their control over the land. So that's why after 2,000 years, everything began in that particular year. That's why the stranger Mark Twain had to undertake his journey in that year. And that's why the land had to be measured by Charles Warren in that particular year. And that's why the ancient city had to be uncovered in that particular year. And that's why the land had to be released at that exact time. It all had to happen in 1867 because that was the year of Jubilee. It was the year of measuring, of transferring, of uncovering and relinquishing and release. It all happened in the year of the Jubilee. And it was the seventh Jubilee, the complete Jubilee. Now, I'm sure that Mark Twain had absolutely no idea that his witness of the Holy Land, of the barrenness everywhere, uh, would be such a fulfillment of prophecy. And I'm sure also that the Ottoman Sultan had no idea that his attempts to relieve his debt would bring about this 
change of ownership of the land as the Jews started buying up land. And I'm sure that Charles Warren didn't have an understanding of the part he was playing. But interestingly enough, Charles Warren did catch a later glimpse of the larger picture. And he started to wonder about what God could be doing. He was a believer. He had other um, issues as well. Apparently he was a mason. Um, but he did read the Bible. He understood from Scripture what Scripture had said. And it wasn't just them, of course, it was the course of kingdoms that are going to be uh, impacted by this. And the repercussions are so vast that all these things would have to come together to make this come about as we've seen in history. Jonathan Kahn again says, The seventh jubilee would mark the end of one era and the beginning of another. The first jubilee of restoration, the jubilee of seeds, of sowing, of planting, and of the setting in motion of ancient purposes. The seeds of the seventh jubilee would begin germinating and would come to their fruition in their appointed times. Some would be revealed sooner, some later, some later, but in time the entire world would see it. The jubilee represents the setting in motion of God's purposes. It sets the stage, it inaugurates the course, it sets the motion, the train of events that must take place in the coming period, the time until the next jubilee. So then what took place in the Jubilee of 1867 would set in motion a train of events, a train of prophetic purposes that with the passage of time would become increasingly manifest. Now I mentioned that Charles Warren had some understanding of what the Bible said in regard to the Jewish people and so on. But let's first just go back to the stranger, Mark Twain. Again, that ancient prophecy foretold the very words that he would speak. He had to bear witness to the land being desolate, to being empty, there was no blade of grass growing and so on. And he did exa- exactly that. You know, his words had to go forth around the world. And why they did, because he was still, while he was still journeying, he sent his reports back home, back to America, where a newspaper got hold of them and published them throughout America. And it went from there. And shortly afterwards, a publisher approached him and wanted to put his words in a book. That book was released in 1869, just a couple of years later. And it's called The Innocence Abroad. And again, that book really in itself was the fulfillment of prophecy. It became a best-seller. In fact, it was his best-selling work up until that point. Charles Warren also, though, his life was intertwined in this, this whole mystery as well. Again, he'd be called the pioneer of Jerusalem archaeology. He would lay the foundation for the uncovering of ancient Jerusalem, as we've seen. And with each uncovering, that connection between the Jewish people and the land would be revived, restored, and renewed. And his measuring out and mapping out Jerusalem would prove so successful that it would open the doors for a greater mission. And that was quite simply that over the next decade or so, they would map out the entire land of Israel. And the survey, interestingly, would cover the area from Dan to Beersheba. Now, if you know your scripture, you'll know that when the Bible talks about the land of Israel, typically, it often refers to it from Dan to Beersheba, the, the northernmost extreme point to the southernmost point. And the survey, again, would cover this area. And just these biblically identified borders that we have. And as they measured and mapped out the land, they discovered long-lost places and sites of biblical interest proving again the authority and accuracy of the Bible and of Israel's right to the land. You know, with every discovery, the connection between the Jewish people and the land was further restored and strengthened. 
And all this in turn will be part of the building of momentum for this greater restoration that would take place in the following century. The prophet Zechariah saw the same thing in that vision. The angel wasn't there just to measure Jerusalem, but to give a prophetic word. And the word will be concerning the restoration of Jerusalem, a call to the exiles of Israel to return to the land, to the blessing that would await them there. So this man with a measuring line is the one who issues this prophetic call according to this prophecy that Zechariah has. Now, I'm sure that Charles Warren had no understanding of his part in this. He was just an engineer. He wasn't a prophet. And yet God was working and God was going to speak. And God chose to speak at this point through him. See, after measuring Jerusalem and uncovering these pathways, Warren returns to England. And he'd be led to write down a vision that he saw concerning the land and its future. Now, this is incredible because it's, it's so specific and it was so out of kilter with the time because it wasn't just a, a, a vision that anybody could have kind of perceived or understood. It was a promise. It was a vision of the land being fulfilled. It was called the land of promise as he wrote it down. Now, again, keep in mind that when he wrote this down, the land was desolate. This was the, the land that Mark Twain had just described, being barren and grassless and so on. And that makes this prophecy, if, if you like, or this vision that he has even more stunning. He wrote that the debt incurred by the Ottoman Empire could be used to bring about the return of the Jewish people to the land. Now, at that point, it was only just beginning, and yet clearly it would seem to be the law was giving him this understanding. He envisioned that the Jewish people again could learn to farm the land. Now, the land was barren, it was desolate. But he believed the land could be watered and the planting of trees would change the land's ecosystem. And the desert, as he wrote, could be made to blossom. In his vision, Warren foresaw the return of the Jewish people from exile and that their return would lead to the birth of a nation. He envisioned that the nation of Israel resurrected from the dead effectively, a Jewish state. He saw great powers of Europe involved in this kind of resurrection of the land and even believed that America would be the best guarantor of the Jewish nation's rebirth. But again, he didn't understand how it could happen but he just felt that this was going to happen somehow. So he records these things in his vision. Just as the previous example we had back in history with Zechariah's day was done. Khan again says this, Where Twain could barely see how the land could support the most meagre populations, Warren wrote of a future where the land could accommodate millions of Jewish people. And yet even with such numbers, he believed that the new Jewish nation could attain a standard of living equal to that of the most advanced nations. With the return of the Jewish people and the blessings of God, the land known to the world as Palestine could again become a land, a land flowing with milk and honey, as in the days of the Bible. Warren's vision was amazingly prophetic, and in the year and decades that followed would come to pass. You see, just go back, sorry, he knew the biblical prophecies of Isaiah's, uh, sorry, of Israel's rebirth. Um, we, so many scriptures speak of that, not only in Deuteronomy, but through the prophets of the Old Testament. And it was those prophecies that gave him confidence to envision what otherwise seemed imaginable. And by so doing, he would pen what is considered the first detailed plan for the establishment of a Jewish state in the land of Israel. And it would be written over 20 years before a similar vision would be penned by a Jewish hand.
Let me quote again. The Ottoman land code of 1867 was set in motion a series of events that would lead to Israel's restoration. By the early 20th century, large tracts of the land had been purchased for the return of the Jewish people. When Twain and Warren came to Jerusalem in 1867, the Jewish people constituted a minority in that city. But within just a few years, they had become the majority. Then just three years after Twain's visit and one year after the publishing of his book came the founding of Mikvah Yisrael. Mikvah Yisrael was the first school established to teach Jewish people how to farm the land. It was the first time in nearly 2,000 years that Jewish people were being taught how to sow and reap the promised land. The first sign of redemption that would transform the country. Again, that same decade we see the founding of the first Jewish agricultural settlements in the land since ancient times. And just after this persecution of the um, the Jews by the Russian Empire would also begin and bring about the fulfillment of ancient prophecies. It would cause many Jewish families to leave and to seek refuge in other lands. Of course, many of them, as a result, returned to the land of Israel. You see, again, nobody involved in the land's restoration could have planned for it or have known, or known that it was coming. The prophecies are beyond any plan or effort of man. All history moves to bring them to fruition. Every event, every life, every path, all woven together. Just one last thing. A chance meeting. Of course, there is no such thing in God's calendar, God's agenda. In the book of Ruth, we read that she just happened upon a field. I love that expression. Of all the fields that Ruth could have gone to, of all the fields that she could have found, she just happens to land on the field of Boaz. And you see God fulfill his purpose there. Well, the same God is still working. He's still doing things. Khan says again, so it was for the stranger that in the latter part of his life that his path would be woven together with that of a European journalist and playwright. It was unlikely that two people so diverse and from such diverse backgrounds would become friends, but they did. As there was a mystery to Mark Twain's life, so there was a mystery to the life of his European friend, who likewise would play a part in an ancient prophecy. He would undergo a transformation that would alter the course of his life and lead him on a mission that would alter the course of the modern world. Who was he? His name was Theodore Herzl. And he would become, as I'm sure many of you are familiar, as the founder of political Zionism, the idea the, or the movement for the return of the Jewish people to the land and the restoration of the nation. Herzl would be called the father of the Jewish state. And so of all the people on earth, the paths of the two people so joined in this mystery just happened to cross over and they happened to bump in to each other. Again, remember what was written in the book of Deuteronomy, that the prophecy of the stranger leads into the prophecy of the nation's regathering. In the sequence that Moses gave it, the stranger would come to the land, that would then lead on to the regathering of the nation. And just in the same way, Mark Twain would be linked to that first prophecy and Theodore Herzl to the second. So as the two prophecies were joined together, so also these two lives fulfilling this. Herzl's Transformation, as it were, took place in Paris in 1894. It was then and there that the visionary and father of the Jewish state was transformed. 
and the paths of Twain and Herzl converged in that same city in that same year they bumped into each other and they became friends and they were brought together in that very place, that very moment effectively Zionism was born there is a prophecy in Isaiah that foretells the restoration of Zion that says no more will it be called a land that is desolate now on the very day that the stranger completed his journey in the land that Mark Twain completed his journey again the prophecy of the stranger, that prophecy we've looked at already, was the one that was read in every Jewish synagogue around the world. But there were other scriptures read that day. It wasn't just that prophecy. You may be amazed, probably not, I hope not at this stage, to find that this was the prophecy that was given. This is another scripture that was read on that day. Thou shalt no more be termed forsaken. This is speaking of the land. Neither shall thy land any more be deemed desolate, but thou shalt be called and thy land Beulah, for the Lord delighteth in thee, and thy land shall be married. The Lord is speaking over the land at this very moment. And of course, later then this chance meeting takes place. Again, what we've seen so far will now increase until it touches the entire earth, until it shakes the world. In our next session, we'll look at what happens from this point. But there's another Jubilee coming. And there's some even more staggering things that all happen at particular moments, on particular days, when particular scriptures are read. Just again confirming that God is in complete control. Let's bow our hearts. Well, Father God, as we just try and comprehend these things, Lord, we have to step back in awe of the God who is in complete control. Lord, exactly as your word had prophesied in regard to the jubilee the land had to be given back to its rightful owners lord at the very time at the very moment lord you engineered that that would happen lord you are the god of restoration you are the god of redemption oh father we thank you that you have redeemed us that you have brought us back lord we who were once separated from our inheritance Lord, you have brought back. And Father, we thank you for the greatest mystery of all is that your love for us was so incredible, so deep. The Lord, you made a way for us to be brought back into this relationship with you that you desired. The Lord, everything that was lost has been restored. We just thank you for your goodness and your grace. And we ask that we would keep growing in that grace in the name of Jesus. Amen.